This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 48, Marvel's Iron Man. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Before we get started, just a few follow-up housekeeping notes. First, we have a new email list for each new episode. If you'd like to be a part of that, contact us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. We have some neat uh, little tidbits that we put in uh, embedded in that email. So just a... Uh, Contact us at that, and we'll sign you up. Second, we only have two more episodes this season before we're going to take a much-needed break. We have both Home Alone, our Christmas episode, and then Casablanca. So you're not going to want to miss either of those. With that, Dad, are you ready to discuss Marvel's Iron Man? Oh, yes, I certainly am. Your facetiousness is just exuding itself. No, 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 no. I went at this with renewed vigor. Renewed Vigor? Who are you? Ooh, I'm me. Okay, whatever. I'm trying to look more positive as we come into a new year where it is not COVID-related. I suppose. All right, as we do each week, let's give you a basic plot summary overview and the recognition for this film. A billionaire industrialist and genius inventor, Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr., is conducting weapons tests overseas, but terrorists kidnap him to force him to build a devastating weapon. Instead, he builds an armored suit and upends his captors. Returning to America, Stark refines the suit and uses it to combat crime and terrorism. Recognition for this film, it was nominated for Best Visual Effects and Sound Editing, at the 2008, or excuse me, 2009 Oscars. And on the AFI list, since 2001, they have nominated the 10 best films each and every year. This didn't was included on their 2008 list. So, what is this movie about? Well, it is a movie about the same, well, <laughs> hard to... All right, so I'm the comic book guy. I'll go first. Yeah. This is not my genre, so go first. Former Playboy billionaire finds new meaning for his life after a crucible moment and vows to right the sins of his past. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. It's been often compared that Tony Stark and Batman are basically the same type of character, but for two different comic series. And there's a lot of similarities that I could at least acquiesce to. I don't think they're the same character because their Crucible moment is different, and ultimately their personalities are different, but it comes down to essentially Tony Stark finding new meaning for his life, realizing that all of the decisions he's made up to that point are not ones he's proud of, nor would he like to be the defining part of his life or what he's remembered for. So he takes it upon himself to rectify the situation and create a new legacy upon which people think more fondly of him. And realistically, it's fitting that this is not only the first movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it ultimately is the thing that defines it most, at least up through where we are currently. Um, The thing that I just noted about the film was, first of all, up until this film came out, 
I have never heard of Iron Man. I am not a comic book guy. The extent of my comic books were I occasionally looked at the fab or the uh, Fantastic Four, but otherwise I looked at comic books as a kid for humor. So I was more into Bugs Bunny and uh, Daffy Duck and Mad Magazine than I was anything. To be fair, I was not familiar with Iron Man either. If I were, as a self-admitted nerd, if I were to say that I was into any type of comic book characters or superheroes, it was definitely the DC line. So I was much more familiar with that due to my upbringing on Cartoon Network, which reran all the Super Friends and Justice League type stuff uh, from the 70s with all the really goofy uh, voiceovers. Yes. Either that or... back in the halls of justice. Thank you, Ted Knight. Anyway, the point being that um, it was either between that or the Adam West Batman show. <laughs> that was like my entrance point yeah. as a kid. But uh, when this... Because uh, I can remember the uh, first time I saw an ad or a trailer for this. It was, uh, if you remember that Tom Brady undefeated Patriots Super Bowl... Sure. The, yes, it was during that, and I remember sitting in the room and somebody saying, oh, I know what that is, and that it would be something to come out, because I want to say this movie came out in, like, June. So it was one of that summer blockbuster releases, and I didn't go to see it because I didn't really care. I mean, this was a Marvel movie, not a DC movie, and I didn't think it would have much branding. I saw it well after the fact, I think on Blu-ray or something, uh, by the time I got to, like, college or whatnot, because I think this movie was 2008, I would have started my freshman year of college in the fall of 2008, so I think that's about the first time I saw it when I was off on my own. I remember renting it from the Blockbuster in Wausau, Wisconsin, and uh, <laughs> watching this at my old apartment, which no longer exists because it burned down. But, I mean, Blockbuster this Blockbuster is... also does not exist. Fair. The... What would it be like? Eleven year run of like twenty five movies, and uh, so uh, maybe this is an interesting exercise of the movies that you have seen from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You've obviously seen this one. You rewatched it for the show, but I think you'd seen this one previously. How yes. many other films from the Marvel Cinematic Universe do you think you've seen in total? Yes, in its in their entirety, from start to beginning. Yes. None. All right. So, okay. You I've are probably the odd person out because I That's think it. just about everybody in America has seen at least um, two of these probably start to finish at some. Nope. You know what? That's not true. What? Because you and I and your friend Andy watched this on New Year's. Uh, we watched Guardians of the Galaxy, the original. Okay. I remember doing that. Yep. All right, I have seen that, so I have watched one. Okay, but I forgot I that mean, was these, included. Yes, this franchise has come to define cinema in a lot of different ways. But before we get into that discussion, let's just focus on this movie more generally. So, who was your best performer? Uh, my best performer was uh, Robert Downey Jr. I, I just like Robert Downey Jr. When to be honest, when when this when they, they announced that this film was being made and I'm like, what's Iron Man? And then they announced that Robert Downey was going to play Iron Man, I'm like, 
I'm sorry, I just can't see Robert Downey as being a superhero. But now that I've watched it, he's very good at it. And um, uh, I think there's a, a certain element. I, uh, having watched interviews and watched him and how he is and his personality, I think that there's a real marriage between the character that is Iron Man, or at least the one that's in the movies, and Robert Downey in real life. So I think that uh, his portrayal has brought Iron Man probably beyond what the comics uh, did. You know, I haven't read the comics, but I'm assuming that he kind of had more of a snarky attitude than what the comics showed. So I also had Robert Downey, and we've talked about it. Huh? Copycat. The amount of times that we've talked about the happy accident situation, there have been a lot of stories for years about the casting of this character in this movie. And I want to say I've at least heard half a dozen big-name actors that passed on this project. Now, given how much money that Robert Downey Jr. came to make off of this franchise with almost each entry, and he did nine different films in total for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I have to admit that I'm sure some of them are probably kicking themselves a little bit. But at the same time, I think Marvel kind of lucked out in finding somebody that didn't have a lot of other associations going into this property that they could make their primary character and thus carry the franchise. But then simultaneously, he does just such a great job not only portraying the character, because it uh, I'm not a comics reader necessarily. I enjoy superheroes. I enjoy comic book characters, but I very rarely read an actual comic book. Apparently, he is as close to the spitting image of the real-life version of Tony Stark from the comics originally that you could possibly get. And that actually leads me into my secondary performance, and I think I, I some of this is splitting hairs for me, but I think we undervalue how good Jon Favreau is. He has now f- set up this franchise because he directed both Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2, and pretty much set the tone of what the or Marvel Cinematic Universe was going to be. He then goes on to direct the uh, Jungle Book, the live-action version, setting up Disney for remaking a bunch of their animated classics as live-action movies and making them a buttload of money, and then finally finishes it up by essentially resurrecting how poorly uh, the movie versions of Star Wars were by creating The Mandalorian, which is now one of the most popular TV shows in the world at this point, and essentially creating this new era of streaming TV, Marvel, or not Marvel, but Star Wars TV, that they just announced like an additional nine TV shows, I think last week or the week before, from Disney. So the amount of money that Jon Favreau has either directly been uh, a part of or has essentially created for Disney, he should almost be running the company at this point. Well, he might, since most of the top executives of Disney may be ambassadors for the Biden administration. 
So, you're not serious, are you? Oh, no, I am. Iger is uh, supposedly being considered for uh, either China or for England or um, or Great Britain. And um, Jeffrey Katzenbach is being considered for Russia. Okay. Most of Hollywood mayors, top executives may be ambassadors for the next year or two. I could buy Bob Iger because I think he is one of the best CEOs to ever do it. Well, he's and retiring. He's well, stepping down. He's I thought he'd already retired. In the next year, anyway. So I, I thought he'd already retired, to he, be honest. He is, um, he is chairman of the board, but he has given up day-to-day operations. But anyway, we digress. The point yes, I'm do. trying to make with Favreau is... If you watch this movie and then you go watch, trying to think, what's what's a similar one that has a, a certain flair to it? There's some individuality in each of the franchises, but if you watch the original Iron Man and then go watch Doctor Strange, the similarity in tone is almost identical identical there's a certain comedic flair there's a snarkiness there's uh, a sarcastic humor but there's enough slapstick in there to just engage multiple parts of the audience there's the action sequences which always seem to be brightly lit none of this ever seems to be dour and it just creates a fun atmosphere and i don't think that his contributions to what is probably the most successful property in movie history can be overlooked in that regard. Well, uh, you you comment about that, and I know from watching a lot of the roles that Favreau has had in movies through the years, he kind of has always presented himself as being kind of a snark, um, kind of the the biting humor and such, and I think that comes through. From what I'm understanding in my research, most of what his collaboration is, and I guess he's kind of out of the Roger Corman theory or school of, of directing, which is the script is just a starting point. You can continue to rework it, and you can kind of play with it and make it your own, and each actor can make suggestions or changes based on their personality. And that's part of the reason why I think, as you're commenting, he's probably a little more fresh than some of the other directors, because some directors, the script is the Bible, Whereas, uh, from what I'm gathering, Favreau says, um, if you think something else will work, we'll try it. We'll record it both ways or, or film it both ways, and we'll go with whichever think I think works best. And so it keeps it lighter and fresher. Well, you and I don't often comment on sports on these episodes, but we've talked privately on multiple occasions how there are certain coaches that are the only ones capable of taking over certain projects. So when, let's just take the example of college football. There is only a certain type of coach that can take over a program like Alabama, which has so many traditions and expectations and all the weight of everything on top of it. Obviously, they have their coach right now. But you get a similar situation at Texas, and that's why they keep running through five, six different guys over the past <laughs> ten years because yeah. they just cannot figure out who that right guy is. And it's really difficult sometimes to note that in a property unless you have a 
structural system to support all of that. What I want to say is it's extremely difficult to be a franchise director. There are not a ton of them out there that you can just thrust into this. Now, Marvel has created a structure where they can fit newer, more independent directors, but they have a direction and a set going for them. Now, part of that has to do with another name that we haven't mentioned here, but uh, is essentially the architect of the MCU, Kevin Feige, but that only developed after the fact of these couple of movies. Now, he was principally involved, but he hadn't become the guy that he is now, which is essentially the guy that pulls all the strings or um, is puppeteering this entire project. So now you can fit in somebody like a Ryan Coogler, who's an exciting young black director, into something like Black Panther and give him some individuality to create a really good movie, but that still fits within the tone and atmosphere of the project itself. But it only starts when you have somebody at the original helm that creates all of these pieces. I think it's similar to how a director comes in and creates the pilot tone for certain TV shows, and there are only a handful of people that can do it well. So I, I think it... Honestly, I had a hard time not putting him as best performer, other than the fact that Downey just so imbues this character. And I think both of them are far and away the best nominees for this movie. All right. So who did you have as your best secondary? I went with Jeff Bridges. Okay. From what I understand, Bridges really kind of uh, was annoyed by the fact that their the script kept changing and how uh, Downey kept rewriting and things were being done and then it was done. Bridges just had a real difficult time doing this because he's more into the whole method acting and uh, preparing well in advance and knowing his lines and being set and such and everything seemed to change he kind of uh in an interview he, he gave a few years afterwards and commented that this was more or less he just kind of changed his attitude and said hey just go with the flow after all you're you're getting paid and you're having fun doing what's really a student movie that's an interesting way to look at it. I, I guess I wouldn't say that it's a student movie. I, I would be curious to follow up on that with his comment there. But I think that secondary aspect of him, he's taken on much more of a persona in the last decade or so after he won his Oscar for Crazy Heart to be much more of the persona of the dude from The Big Lebowski. <laughs> and so it, it's very difficult for me to reconcile the nature of someone who is more strict or more studious, where he just seems to be a guy who's constantly high. Well, you know, and unfortunately right now he's got lymphoma and is in sure. chemo treatment. But even then, his comment was, you know, because I saw a post on Instagram where he said, Doing well, man. You know, he's got a new dog and or puppy that he's hanging with. He shaved his head because of the chemo. and But even then, you kind of like, he's kind of just an overgrown kid. Yeah, and I think he's found peace with his life, which is enjoyable to recognize. But obviously, we wish him well and, you know, a, a 
decent recovery and all of that. He's just an interesting fit in the the bigger universe of what this was. I think him being in the first movie makes more sense than him being in the 13th movie of a Marvel franchise. Well, yeah. And, I mean, he's had somewhat of an interesting life. After all, his dad did have to stop sniffing glue. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, most charismatic award. I I gave it to Robert Downey. I don't really not know how you can nominate anybody else because, frankly, there is nobody else that can simultaneously be a dick to everybody in the movie and yet make you like him. Yeah, I know, and I I, I think I would um, agree with that, but um, I'm going to also give a, um, a uh, one to him and one B to somebody completely out of the out of the limelight. Clark Gregg, the guy who plays Agent Coulson, there's just oh. something about that guy. He just gives a sense of like, you know this guy has something hidden behind him, and he's just you, you just know there's something else there. And he he's not as clean cut and as quiet and refined as he appears. And you know that there's going to be much bigger roles and bigger situations for him to come. And so to that extent, I really liked him and thought he did a really great job. His casting in this, because everything about him has kind of almost a wry smile. You're absolutely correct. The Given that you haven't watched the other movies, he does have a much bigger role uh, I won't spoil it for you, but by the time we get to our eventual Avengers episode, which is another one of these that we're going to be doing, let's just say that there's a big portion in that movie for him. Okay. So. I just thought he's really good in the yes, role, he's, and he's he has a been presence a fan on the screen. Yeah. And there's a reason he ended up getting his own TV show for a while on ABC. Yes. All right. Uh, let's go to best scene. I'm going to nominate the escape from the prison camp. Oh, damn uh, you. Well, <laughs> you could def- definitely talk about it, too. I mean, sure, it's fine. Limited. Whatever. Well, I think that's where the movie really starts to take off. Obviously, I think the way they flashed back to that sequence, so they open it up and they kind of drop you into the middle of that and then the explosions and all the things that are happening. Then they do the backtracking, and they get it all the way back up to that present point. But where he really creates Iron Man for the first time, and he pops out, and that's like that big action sequence, and you're just kind of pumped up going through that whole thing where he just lights everybody on fire and then takes off and uh, has that moment where he's in flight and escapes the, the camp and everything successful to get him out of there. I think that's the one moment where not only the first act really ends, but gives you that uh, inkling of what's to come with the rest of the character. And it's a great closing sequence. It's actually a great uh, way to have plotted out the entire script to end on that note, because that's about, what, uh, 40 minutes into the film? 45 so that, yes. that's a good breaking point to give you that one really cool action sequence that says, all right, now you you have my attention. Here's what's to come. Um, I'm going to go with the, the scene 
of um, Stark and Pepper on the balcony almost kissing. I'm like, why? Why didn't you finish? What was the purpose? Why did you stop? I'm kind of like, you know, was it the goop? Are you just going to be, like, facetious the whole time and just poke fun at all of this? No, but every time I watch her anymore, all I can think of is her goop. <laughs> Let's then go into the further essences of goop and, uh, what is it, the vaginal candles? Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. All right, uh, I'm going to go with First Flight. I think it's the next big action sequence where uh, you have to go through this in stages as he creates the suit, as he becomes the character. You know, it's a lot of the tropes in these first introduction movies where you get the character in action for the first time. And taking flight as the superhero is always that kind of uh, mythical moment. There's that trope a lot in Superman movies. Uh, you get it the first time, like, Spider-Man is web-slinging in the Sam Raimi movie. And so I think it's just a, a nice moment to really signify this is the character arriving, and this is what the superhero is going to be, or what his suit's going to look like, and how the character's going to interact. And it's a moment of accomplishment because... He's created this ridiculously cool thing out of absolutely nothing, and he's now going to be a superhero. And I think it's fitting that, yeah, I can fly. Well, I'm going to nominate the Jeff Bridges, I'm a bigger Iron Man than you are uh, scene, because uh, ultimately Jeff Bridges gets so caught up in the power and everything, he kind of loses sight of all the nuances that have to occur whenever you take on new technology to make sure it works. You know, I thought it was funny, the ice, you know, the ice problem, and he's plummeting. How he managed to actually survive that, considering the circumstances, I'm not sure. I know how it had to go that way for the movie and the climactic ending, but ultimately... I would have thought it would have been just as funny and uh, entertaining to have had him just crash and die based on that ice. Yeah, I'm not really certain why they didn't go with that, because it is kind of a fitting, oh yeah, Tony outsmarted him kind of situation. This guy had every advantage in order to beat him, and ultimately I think that is something of the hero character, that they have to be outmatched and ultimately find a way either through smarts or uh, something clever to figure out a way past the antagonist. And it's just much more successful. In that way, I think it ends up being that. But I also think you need that climactic ending with the flickering arc reactor in his chest that signifies his heart and all of that stuff in order to make it um, you know, more cinematic. But... I, I kind of agree with you that they could have ended it with that, and it makes just as good a sense. Yes. Just me. So, the next one I'm going to do... I'm going to go back a little bit further before my first nominee, and it's start creating the arc reactor. 
Because when he's kind of tinkering around, and I think it's one of the indicative moments of what Stark becomes in the rest of the MCU. He's not just Iron Man, but he's also Tony Stark. And he's the guy creating all of the gear and the cool gadgetry, and he's clearly smarter than everybody else. Obviously, there's a line later on in the movie. You know, Tony Stark created this in a cave with a bunch of scraps. Well... Yeah, because it's Tony Stark. Tony Stark is somehow like this super genius beyond the capabilities of apparently everybody but uh, Bruce Banner to outthink and create in ways that nobody else has the capacity to. And I think it does set up a lot of his character, particularly for sequences like uh, any of the Avengers movies where he's creating all of the tech that's available for the rest of the Avengers. Uh, it's just that small moment where we get a eventual expansion on his uh, capabilities. I don't know, maybe the next movie they could bring him back and he could create an electric car. What's your next one? I like the scene with uh, Leslie Bibb, um, the uh, interview where she's like in his face, and the next thing you know, they're like in the bedroom going at it, and then she wakes up and the computer is giving her instructions on how to leave and how to, you know, what about going away. I just thought, boy, there's there's the ultimate and smooth. The guy is able to to fend off uh, adverse uh, press, turn it into a, a conquest, and then duck out before anything has to be done. I mean, it's the ultimate um, cool. I, I know that Stan Lee is in this playing supposedly Hefner, but that is a Hefner-type scenario. Fair point. I think it is one of those sit-up-and-take-notice moments of the playboy aspect of Stark's character, although you get a little bit of that in the lines before when they're in the fun V, where, you know, is it true that you got all or were uh, or slept with every one of Maxim's cover models. And so that that obviously tries to open up that portion of things, but that is much more blatant. And so you get that that side of Stark where he could have any relationship he decides and ultimately when he decides to invest in Pepper that that pays off a little bit more. So I'm going to go with what's ultimately my nominee for favorite scene. And I think it's when you get the fully actualized Iron Man for the first time. It's him rescuing Gulmira slash the training exercise. It's always been my favorite sequence of the movie because it's the hero getting pissed off and going to rectify or take care of business. And then he just has this moment of just heroism or like the machismo that's exuded by that epitomized by that one small sequence and it was in that original trailer where the tank fires a giant shot at him he ducks out of the way then fires a small little like grenade or uh, rocket propelled piece at the tank and it has it explode and then just walks away like it was nothing and it's just like yeah that's what you want out of your superhero. Well, the one question I have on that scene is, is he pulls a guy through a stone wall and the guy is fine. 
he gets up and runs away. I think he would have been in a little more uh, worse shape than that. Okay, we will visit all of the places that this movie has problems from its action sequencing or its story continuity or any of the other pieces that don't make sense. But let's get through this portion first. All right, fine. Go ahead. So do you have any other nominees? No. So I'm going to nominate the two press conferences as well. Uh, I think there are good bookends to drive the narrative of the character. You don't often get the the reason why I think a lot or this character resonates a little bit more than uh, the average character has partly to do with the altruistic nature. Despite his character flaws, he somehow is unconventional in a lot of ways, but ultimately makes the non-self-serving, non-monetization, non-investor move, and decides to shut down his weaponry in order to make the world a better place. And so that's indicative of what you would want a hero to essentially do, but that nobody does actually in real life, which tells you a lot already just from that character. But then that final moment, I think for as climactic as the battle on the roof is that moment where he reveals, and I, it was somewhat of a shocking movie. All of the primary characters you have gotten up to this point, the Holy Trinity of primary superheroes, Batman, Superman, and Spider-Man, you know, they're in their, or they have their uh, secret identities. And so they're always very protective of that, and only certain people can know who they are, and they always have to be self-sacrificing. Whereas this guy, yeah, uh, I am Iron Man. Close scene. And it's like that pump-up moment, and somehow it, it works that that, uh, bravado carries through. Now, part of it is also the choice to have Iron Man the Black Sabbath song on top of it, but it was oh, a great oh. close to the movie. The last one I want to do, and I think it's just noteworthy to nominate it because it was eventually a staple of the Avengers series, is the cutscene at the end, or the end credit scene. It's been more commonly called. But the scene with Nick Fury and the Avengers Initiative, it's maybe 30 seconds, but I think that might be one of the most impactful scenes. It's not my best scene, but it needs to be at least generally discussed, but I'm sure it'll come up a little bit more later. So out of these, what do you think was the best scene, though? The escape. I think it was well done. I thought it was heroic. I thought it really got you on the side of Stark and really got you rooting for him to take on the role as being the Avenger of evil, the fighter of uh, bad uh, motives, um, the guy who is going to ultimately come through in the end and right the, the, the wrongs that have been created in his name up until that point. I'm going to go with First Flight. Ultimately, I think there is a lot to be or that needs to come through in a scene like that. And I think they did it incredibly successfully. And the sheer enjoyment and enthusiasm that you can tell in Downey when 
uh, he takes off and he he flies for the first time. I think that's a magical moment for not only the character but just a superhero movie in general. And so I think that that ends up being a nice uh, midpoint for the entire movie that ultimately uh, endears you to the character more than almost anything else, I think. Uh, I already gave my favorite scene, but what was yours? Um, I I really enjoy the uh, the exact same scene, which is I, I thought was the best scene, which is the escape because... I mean, it it really got you motivated to like, hey, yeah, this guy's really gonna you know accomplish something. So, I I thought that was the scene I enjoyed the most for that reason. Okay, my most indelible moment has a lot more to do with things that came after it, but it's the final moment of the movie. Well, at least the main portion of the movie, not the ending sequence, but it's I am Iron Man. And that does come up later, hopefully not a big spoiler for everybody else, since uh, Endgame was the biggest movie in the history of cinema last year, when we could actually still go to theaters, but that obviously does have a bigger impact, and because of that movie and how it all started and everything else, it is the thing that I probably remember most from this movie. What was yours? The ending itself, I guess. Uh, to some extent, simply the, the, the climactic scene on the roof, uh, the fighting of uh, really... Uh, Jeff Bridges represented greed, corporate greed, and the yes. fact that uh, ultimately he came to understand that greed and his own behavior was not appropriate, and he was able to fight even at, against... Uh, uh, overwhelming odds since he was a bigger unit and able to do more and all this. He was ultimately able by wits and tenacity to overcome the ultimate greed associated with corporate greed. All right, we will be right back after this commercial sponsor. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back. We are now jumping into Best Lines. Uh, what do you have down as your first nominee, Dad? Uh, let's face it. This isn't the worst thing you ever caught me doing. That line, I would have nominated, but it provides or has to have so much context to it. Uh, it. It certainly was one of the funniest ones, but if for whatever reason you have not seen a 12-year-old film, it is available currently on Disney+, and that is a scene that is a definitely funny moment of the film. Uh, first one I had, um, Obadiah, so Jeff Bridges' character, when I ordered the hit on you, I was worried that I was killing the golden goose. 
But you see, it was just fate that you survived it, leaving one last golden egg to give. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? Your father, he helped us give us the atomic bomb. Now, what kind of world would it be today if he was as selfish as you? Yeah, I. that is a good line. It's kind of a summation line of Jeff Bridges' character. Um, and one of the unresolved issues, that line leads me to that point, uh, and we'll talk at the end about it, but... Um, okay, so you have a probably a very similar unanswered question or final question that I do as well. Because part of my final question was his motivations and some of that, because if you're ever going to get that explanation from the villain, this is probably as close to we get it in this film, but ultimately this film really isn't about the antagonist as much as it is just the protagonist pushing whatever antagonist is out the way. So, yeah, I can, you know, I understand your point, and I understand the quote, and I understand where you're going with it. And it is interesting because it does do more development for the antagonist than really you have in a lot of films. One of the few criticisms of the MCU up until pretty recently has been how thin or how hollow the villains are. And I think that this being the only real character, I guess, explanation or growth motivation is kind of telling of how thinly done the the villains were in this, I guess, the movie that essentially created the rest of the series or set the, the tone, the structure for the rest of the series. So from this villain, we get a bunch of other very thin foils. What's your next nominee? I prefer the weapons you only have to fire once. It's kind of um, the epitome of him up until his... Well, he he reaches his climactic point where his life changes dramatically because his of his circumstances. The point where he comes to realize that what he's doing is not necessarily beneficial. And... Um, you know, it, it really it really kind of exemplifies exactly that attitude of the big weapons manufacturer that only looks at their side of it, which is, you know, if it wasn't for us, things wouldn't be safe. Well, I'm going to lead into the next nominee that I have, but again, you're taking it from the perspective that this is one of only one or two or three uh, movies out of this franchise that you've seen. I think had you seen all of them like I have, you would realize that even though he kind of makes a, and I don't mean pun intended here, but stark change to his life and his motivations in the middle of this movie, he still takes that same attitude. There's still that bravado of, I'm going to do it bigger, badder, and better than anyone else, and I'm going to default to trying to find the weapon that you only have to fire once. But the next nominee I wanted to put down, well, Miss Brown, it's an imperfect world, but it's the only one we got. I guarantee you the day weapons are no longer needed to keep the peace, I'll start making bricks and beams for baby hospitals. You rehearse that much? Every night in front of the mirror before bedtime. I can see that. I'd like to show you firsthand. 
All I want is a serious answer. Okay, here's serious. My old man had a philosophy. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. That's a great line coming from the guy selling the sticks. Good. I mean, it, it could go in concert with the, the other line that I had, too, which is just uh, before that. My father helped defeat the Nazis. He worked on the Manhattan Project. A lot of people, including your professors at Brown, would call that being a hero. And a lot of people would also call that war profiteering. Tell me, do you plan to report on the millions we are sa- or we've saved by advancing medical technology or kept from starvation with our IntelliCrops? All those breakthroughs. Military funding, honey. And I, I think these are the types of lines from a dialogue perspective that I always enjoy or that resonate with me as a, somewhat of a writer because it's exposition while still driving something more. These are fun quippy lines but there's also explaining more to these characters and their personality than is immediately apparent there's so much under the surface here he's a weapons manufacturer he's got an attitude he's a clearly comfortable person with himself he has a beyond confident personality because he's the golden boy his father it's a multi-generational thing i mean there there's so many different aspects to those two dialogue sets and then it it's kind of indicative that it's from one of the scenes that you actually nominated as to how this movie kind of plays out i like that we start with uh the crucible moment or him getting essentially blown up and then we go into the exposition to kind of give you the backstory and then lead back up to that moment and how they did the interplay on that one, because I think it is more effective than had they started with this scene. I think to some extent the uh, interplay that goes on in those situations is a little contrived because in reality, most people do not end up having those kinds of dialogues. Most of the time, people who are in those situations and they get into a heated argument end up because they can't think fast enough and make a cogent point, will go like, oh, yeah? Well, of course, that's why this is the movies. Nobody really talks like this. Moving on, what's your next nominee? Um, I really didn't have anything. I looked through stuff, and I'm like, nothing really resonated with me. I mean, there's a lot of funny lines and cute lines and whatever, but I didn't think anything was overly impactful. I mean, most of this really is, to a large extent, action-oriented. And it's the action that really makes it. The lines kind of bridge between the action sequences to me. You know, and, and so I had a hard time finding lines that I really liked. Okay, and that's fair. I'll give you the few other ones that I really wanted to highlight. So. Tony and Yinsen kind of during the escape, because I think this is the defining moment of Tony's motivation. Come on, you're going to see your family. Get up. My family is dead, Stark, and I'm going to see them now. It's okay. I want this. I want this. Stark is silent for a moment. Thank you for saving me. Don't waste it. Don't waste your life, Stark. And I think that comes to define his almost rebirth for the rest of the movie uh the other part so 
I mentioned it briefly, the the press conference scene, but this is how we kind of began the first press conference. And I think there's a lot more in this, especially if you know how his relationship with his father plays out over the course of the MCU, and that this comes back around a lot of different times. I never got to say goodbye to my father. There's questions I would have asked him. I would have asked him how he felt about what his company did, if he was conflicted, if he ever had doubts, or maybe he was every inch of man we remember from the newsreels. I saw young Americans killed by the very weapons I created to defend them and protect them, and I saw that I had become part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. I think not only is he dealing with the demons that created him, but at the same time basically creating a mission statement in that small introduction. And then finally, and I think this is, again, for me as the most indelible moment, the truth is, pause, I am Iron Man. Well, I like the the whole idea or the whole concept of the uh, father-son dynamic. And, of course, being father and son podcast. Well, this, again, and I would encourage most people to see if not all the films, at least most of them, especially the ones involving the principal Avengers. So Thor, I guess you could probably skip Thor Dark World. It's probably the worst Marvel movie that is part of this universe. But uh, Captain America has been my favorite of the series of Avenger movies because I think all three of them are the strongest. And then the Iron Man movies. But then create that through to the rest of the Avengers movies. There's four of those as well. And there's really a development through the course of all of those films as to how Stark relates to his parents. Because I think his dad and his mom come up specifically in a couple of different cases for each of the Captain America films. So there's kind of a larger story to be told. And given that his company and everything he's gotten is from his father especially you can see the development of this plot line in iron man 2 as there's a much different relationship to his father and how that plays out and how that has to expand in order to understand who tony stark is to get his eventual climax at the end of the last avengers movie so I think this is indicative of the the larger sense as a whole. And yes, it's hard for me not to bring in all of the other pieces of this storyline because, I mean, that's nine movies worth. It's a big part of who this ends up being. Well, ultimately, I think the the dynamic of this lays out exactly a principle that I've thought long and hard about, which is men and uh, adolescents, whatever, have a tendency to try to migrate towards the 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 point or the example that they have before them. So boys grow towards their father unless there's something about their father that they uh, disrespect or can't appreciate or don't understand. And then they go through a conflict that may take years, if not most of their lives, to resolve. Because the norm is that you try to exemplify, and this is especially true of of 
uh, sons and fathers. You try to exemplify your father, and you try to resolve the conflicts, either that you don't like your father for something, or you don't understand your father for something. And I think most of the time, people go through a long period of time trying to to resolve those conflicts, especially men. And most of the male problems, the male psychological problems, it resolves around that. Either not liking what their father is and don't wanting to be their father, or not understanding their father, or liking their father and fearing they will not be as good as their father. Those are the three points. And I think to some extent, the whole concept of Stark and his father is foreshadowed in this film. And I think it kind of exemplifies what probably has made several billions of dollars in psychoanalysis for the uh, mental health industry trying to resolve. You know, I mean, I, I can think of my dad and his father, and I can think of me and my father, and that's where I came to this conclusion, and I'm watching, and in my profession, seeing how men in, uh, have to deal with their relationships with their fathers. And it, it's, it's difficult to be a father, and it's difficult to relate to a father. And I don't think it's nearly as difficult for women who have a much more social aspect of this. So my guess is, is that the Marvel Universe, especially this kind of dynamics, whether it's, uh, and for that matter, DC uh, as well, Batman trying to live up to his father's image or Stark living up to his father's image, I think these comics, if not overtly trying to exemplify this issue, do it subtly and maybe not intentionally, or maybe intentionally, I don't know, but I think it does show something significant that's in our culture. I think that's why I have a hard time with some of these so-called serious directors. Like, Martin Scorsese has repeatedly been harsh toward what he deems to be pop films and their place within cinema, that they're not real cinema. And I think there are a lot of deeper themes and explorations that can be explored in these films. I honestly don't see a ton of difference in Star Wars, the original, and why it could be considered a greater classic film by comparison to Jaws or any of these other big blockbuster pop films of the time. Why is something that was box office successful like Spartacus all that much different than Iron Man? I mean, legitimately, I, I say that in all seriousness, other than the fact that it takes place in a much more grandiose and large-scale universe where things are a little bit more magical. But I really don't see what separates The Terminator or Jurassic Park or some of these other giant blockbuster movies from the comic book world other than the built-in narrative about them and people just not taking them seriously, which 
I try and give them their opinion and their respect for what they are. I just simply don't agree with it. The other thing that I'm going to say with this, and I think this is part of this line, so I'm going to ask this question in all seriousness. We've never really discussed about it. We've talked about it subtly, and I know it was hard for you at the time, but in this, he says, I never got to say goodbye to my father. Now, you find out in a later movie that his father died rather suddenly. In fact, we're recording this technically. I think there was an article on comicbook.com today that this would have been, I think, the 20th anniversary of the Stark parents' death uh, today in like the regular universe, if the Marvel universe was real. But his parents died rather suddenly in a car accident, and so he didn't get to say goodbye. Now, your dad was sick for a long time, yes. but you weren't there at the end. You were rushing to be there, but he passed away in transit. So, do you really feel that you got to say goodbye to him? And if not, are there things that now, looking back on it, that you would have liked to have asked him? No, because when you know your father is ill and may die at any moment, um, he had cancer and um, was in hospice. Every time you saw him, you had to assume that was going to be the last time you were going to see him. And so I was able to prepare myself and to tell him things and to say things. And even then, um, even though it had advanced to his brain and he had been really lacking in cognitive abilities for the most part towards the end, I know that the nurse held the phone up as I told him I would be there as soon as I could and that I loved him. And the nurse said he reacted to that. I, I really believe that he was able to understand that part. So, no. It's different in that circumstance because you can prepare for it for a long period of time. Whereas my mom died of a heart attack suddenly and unexpectedly. That was much different, and to some extent, I know by my actions and circumstances how she felt and that I kind of said goodbye every time, but that sudden death does make a difference because it does not allow you the closure that you have with a long death. It's much more grueling to go through a long-term death than it is a sudden death. The sudden death is more painful and quicker, um, but you tend to recover. But I think it, the the aspects or the, the results linger much more than the long-term death because you're able to come to terms with it over a period of time. So I, I look at it as having the advantage and the disadvantage of having death of both parents in completely different ways because I understand so much about them and can relate. And ultimately, I'm going to say this, which is something that I realized after my, my mom had gone about 10 years before my dad. And after the uh, funeral and I was driving back, you guys were smaller yet, or and in the, the van we were driving at the time, and I got to about 
he lived in Beloit. We live in Wisconsin Rapids, about three hours apart. And I got to about Portage, which was about two hours away. And I came almost to the point where the highway splits. And some revelation hit me at that moment in time, which is that once your last parent goes, you are no longer, you no longer have a youth. As long as your parents are alive, you can go back to the childhood you had. But once both parents are gone, it becomes your past. And you now realize you are the patriarch of the family, and it changes you. And some men, some guys are just not capable of handling it. Or having watched the film and watching Tony Stark in the film, I think to some extent there was an aspect of him that did not come to terms with it because he didn't want to necessarily be the patriarch which is why Jeff Bridges' character had such influence in the company, you try to avoid it. So as much as I've given it consideration, I personally don't think I'll ever be ready for when that eventual time is going to come. Just knowing myself. And there will always be a lingering question or two that after the fact... I wished I could have asked in my time. But the the regret and the pain that's still there, while ultimately making a bigger point about what this says about the company and his legacy and all of the things that go into that, I think is a much bigger piece of this movie than people give it credit for. It's not finished. In no way is this storyline settled realistically you don't get that final moment of clarity between tony and his dad until the last avenger movie but it, this is clearly something that comes to define the character and how they relate and i think there's no coincidence that this came up even in a movie that it clearly was not the focus of the movie so out of the ones we've nominated though now that we've taken that rather large aside, what uh, do you think was the best line? Boy, it's kind of hard to go back to the lines after we've gone into the abyss. Understood. Um, I don't know. I really, I'm having a very difficult time going back to the lines after this conversation, to be honest. All right, so I'm just going to leave them up generally then, and we're just not going to pick one. Uh, I'll leave that up as, as the total of all of them. And they can all be taken for whatever f face value uh, anybody wants to put on it. Uh, I'll just nominate a couple of these other ones quickly for funniest line. You've been called the Da Vinci of our time. What do you say to that? Absolutely ridiculous. I don't paint. <laughs> uh, and then also, uh, so you must be the famous Pepper Potts. Tony still has you doing his dry cleaning. I do anything and everything Mr. Stark asks of me which includes, from time to time, taking out the trash. Will that be all? I, I think that's probably one of my favorite lines of the entire movie, just for how snarky it is and how m much I wish that I had that just clever comeback for the amount of times somebody tries to insult me like that. All right, so let's move into our Stanley rubric. What did you have down for Legacy? 9.5. 
Simply Interesting. Because, simply because how many films were derived from this and the amount of money that's been made in Hollywood and how it's ultimately impacted filmmaking in general and the whole idea or concept of blockbusters. So I get where your point is. I probably contributed that more to impact significance. So I actually went with a 6.5, which is part of the reason that I thought that was interesting. Because I think this is one of the forgotten movies of the MCU at this point. I think for a lot of people, they kind of gloss over this phase one. And for most people paying attention to the Avengers, it starts with that original Avengers movie for them. They may have gone back and watched these and may enjoy them. Uh, I know that a lot of people at the time, especially since, uh, and I forget if I've told this on the podcast before, so forgive me, but I worked at a, a Sam's Club for like three months out of a summer, four months out of a summer, and I was right next to the electronics department. This movie was right around that time, and it kept showing basically on a loop. So I've probably seen this movie like 80 times because of that, in addition to things like Marley and Me and Bolt. You know, great films of cinema history, along with Spider-Man 3. Woohoo! But anyway, the point uh, I'm trying to make is uh, that a lot of people that were around me actually liked having this movie on by comparison to half of those other movies because this is a very rewatchable movie. Obviously, we're not in rewatchability yet, but just putting that that forward. So I think this did have an audience and a crowd, but it certainly didn't grow into what it was eventually. I think that there is something to be said because uh, usually we limit impact significance to the first five years. So maybe I am a little bit lower on this, but there are some other pieces of this that more contribute towards the classicness category. And this is where I'm trying to define or put proper borders on all of this. I just think this is kind of one that's swept under the rug. This certainly doesn't have the same resonance with the general population that something like Black Panther or any of the Avengers movies or uh, even Guardians of the Galaxy does, where everybody kind of knows who you're talking about by comparison. Well, I, I, I went much higher for simple reason that, but for this, you wouldn't have the rest of them. And that's fair. And ultimately, that's the key because, you know, and I, I think about this, all right, this, uh, the impact of this movie, I remember sitting in my office and the guy that I worked with, it was the senior partner of my firm, Leon, came in and he and his wife were huge movie buffs and they would go to everything and anything. Anything that was at the local cinema, they tended to go to. Even the most bizarre things, you'd like, why in the world would this 60-year-old man and his wife want to go see... Yeah, I remember like seeing them at the last Jason Bourne movie. Yeah. It kind of floored me a little bit, but all right. Point but taken. he went and he came in and he just was going on and on about this film, Iron Man, and how great Robert Downey was and how he thought, you know, Robert Downey would never be this good in this film, but oh my God, it was so great. You know, and I'm thinking about this and I'm like, here's somebody that I would not think would be enthralled in the Marvel universe. And um, ultimately he was, 
And my guess is he's seen almost every one of the films because of it. And I think there's a lot of people in this country because they watched this film that have looked at or watched all the other films or started down a path of watching them that they didn't have necessarily before or really had no interest in Marvel until this. You're probably right. I am probably generally too low because, again, and I kind of made this point earlier, and so maybe I'm contradicting myself from earlier in the show that this set the tone and the structure for the rest of the franchise. And so from that, you get all of the rest of those movies that have been generally successful. You can plug in new directors. You can plug in new characters. You can make a movie with Paul Rudd as Ant-Man, which would be ridiculous if you started out the franchise. But because it's built on the back of all of the things like this that came before it, it's ultimately successful, and he can be thrust into the middle of all those Avenger movies. So I guess I will raise mine to an 8. So that'll put it at 8.75 generally i just think that in the short term for what this movie does because how much can you credit it with the overall success and the burgeoning uh because this was only the first in a stack of dominoes but it wasn't the biggest domino that created the context of where we're at cinematically and the franchise system so if the first domino is set three inches away from all the other dominoes and tips over and doesn't hit anything, the other dominoes all fall to anyway? Maybe it's not the best or the cleanest example, but let's say, for I example, say. the Avenger, the first Avenger movie didn't work, that we wouldn't have another 15 or so films after that. Or if so there are other pieces... the future of the franchise on a film that was successful. Because a later film failed. I didn't say any of them failed. I'm saying that this didn't have the same legacy that you could say other movies in the franchise do. Except that this franchise started it down the path. If another film was bad and killed the franchise, that's that film's problem, not this one. If you don't have an additional 15 films many of which are billion-dollar films that end up creating, you know, we would have never gotten to things like Black Panther or Captain Marvel or the last couple of Avenger movies where this all pays off. I think it would have undercut the legacy even more than that. I've already come up to an eight. Okay, fine. So whine a little more. Let's go. Come on, next. Well, fine, then give me your impact significance. Nine. Turd. Why? I don't know, just because you've been so confrontational? Yeah, whatever. This is your film. This isn't mine. I'm not a comic book guy. I came into this going, ugh. And I came in with wide eyes and trying to appreciate it for what it was, which is a piece of entertainment that had some lessons and some cultural significance and tried to glean out of it some something significant and i think for the most part when we've talked about it i have so i'm coming at it as probably half of america has who've never seen these films or even given them a second thought but impact for the exact same reason it started a whole group of films going down a path of of considering things that 
most of us would have never thought about. Let me take it in this direction. I gave it a straight 10. I kind of talked to you a little bit about this over the weekend, and I don't think I've ever given an impact significance a straight 10. But I want to set the full height and depth of what a category can be. So I'm being a little bit more extreme in some of my grading or being a little bit more critical than I had been, just so we have a bigger range and that all of these start falling in a a very close-knit scoring. But for me, given that this set the tone, this set the structure, this became the Marvel universe in a lot of different ways and that encompasses a lot of different characteristics about what this was but then you have to take an example all the impact that the marvel movies essentially have created these are the biggest movies each and every year people plan their uh film calendars around this there's no other franchise that can put out a character or three or four different films and have them be the biggest ones in a given year We had a calendar year where I want to say we had billion-dollar grossing films of, like, uh, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, Thor Ragnarok, and, like, one other film. I think it might have even been Ant-Man within, like, a 20 or a 12-month span. And all of them were, like, somewhere between 800 and a billion dollars. And they're featuring some of the most diverse acting and characters that you could have ever taken on but you couldn't have done that had not all of these pieces worked up into that by the same token hollywood has started to structure around all of the tent polling the franchise system and the ip that everybody keeps trying to buy it's why disney ended up buying lucasfilm because they wanted to build ip around star wars which is a built-in brand You don't have to create the audience. The audience is pre-existing because they're going for these huge money-making machines. And it's so hard to build a franchise that when you get one that you can invest in like this, it becomes such a bigger piece of what your industry is doing. A lot of the industry is focused around sequels now as a result of that. You get how many different movies that, like, we get an entire summer release catalog that's just basically a long list of sequels uh, or stuff that's not original anymore. There are very few big blockbuster movies that we talk about that aren't part of a franchise or are somewhat of an original take. And so all of the through lines you start to see for the last five to six years especially I think are impacted by the MCU, which starts with this movie, which is part of what you were arguing before for Legacy. I just put it in a different category. Okay. But Hollywood, for the most part, doesn't want to invest in films that are not going to make money. They're not going to put the big dollars into a film if it's not going to make big dollars. There's been too many Wizard of Oz's that took uh, 20 years to make back the money they invested in the films. Which is one of the reasons why Hollywood back in the 90s and early uh, 21st century did all these movie versions of TV shows because they were banking on the fact that there would be a group of people who remembered the TV shows who would go and watch the movie because they liked the TV show, so therefore it was a safer investment. 
So to that extent, that's why we're talking about all these sequels, because it's a fairly safe investment. You know if you put the dollars in to this film based on the previous films, you're going to make your money back. And yet I've seen how many times that they've tried to repeatedly do this and had so many flops by thinking that this is somehow the greatest thing. And while Star Wars has worked out in the financial sector of it, I wouldn't say that there are uh, a majority of Star Wars fans that really felt satisfied with the last trilogy. I wouldn't say that there are a great number of Batman or uh, superhero fans from the DC side of things that really felt that Zack Snyder-verse was successful and really put them on a, a different mark. There are very few franchises that are bankable, and it takes so much to create those. That's why I think there's been such a backlash among the people that are interested in movies and film culture and, and the rest of this that are concerned with the direction that we've gone from a studio system that doesn't invest in the small projects. So you can build a brand like Jurassic Park, which at the time was maybe a smaller film, but you could build it into a brand. One of the biggest franchises in the world is the Fast and Furious brand. That was like a small independent movie that featured a bunch of nobodies that slowly developed over time an audience by just adding more and more ridiculous stunts and sequels to it. And so over time, that ended up happening. But if you don't have the investment there, and I don't see the willingness of studios to create some of these things, I think it's going to be very difficult to continue on. I know that Disney is really trying to push Indiana Jones 5, but you're doing with Harrison Ford at 78 years old, and it's supposedly going to be his last time. But we already tried one sequel to Indiana Jones that most Indiana Jones fans, including myself, felt betrayed by in 2007. So how is this film going to resonate with the guy who is literally an ancient artifact himself by this point? So I, I just, I'm concerned over the health of the industry because we've gone so far into this because... Uh, a lot of the studios see how much Disney, yes, invested, but more importantly, they see all the dollar signs that could be at the end of this, but they don't want to put in the work in order to do it. And that's the one area where Disney has been more successful than any of the other studios in being able to cultivate these. They put in the effort, they put in the right people to work on these franchises and do them correctly. If we had more studios that figured out how to do all of these brands and didn't just try and go for the cheap and easy buck that they thought was bankable, I'd be much more excited for where we were going. Do the right thing, the money will come. The problem with the Star Wars films has been the fact that they did not create a story arc. They let each director kind of take his own direction with the films, and they kind of jutted and jotted around and and it made no sense where they ultimately ended up. You need to have that. If you're going to do a trilogy or a um, line of films, a you need to have a story arc. You need to have somebody in charge. I mean, there's a reason why uh, parts four, five, and six work so well for Star Wars, 
because George Lucas had in mind where he was going with these films. He knew what he was trying to accomplish and where he was going with them. And then they grew within the parameters established. That's not what we have in Hollywood. I, I've said all along, Disney's 10th uh, film for Star Wars should be called The Quest for More Money. You know damn well <clears throat> that Star Wars, with the name Star Wars, is going to make a shitload of money. And so why are you not trying to establish some parameter of where you think this film would be to some artistic level and then achieve that knowing that if you do that, it's going to make money instead of trying to figure out how to make money and then develop a story around it. That's the problem that Hollywood has. And right now they can't get, they keep losing their, the forest for the trees. It's about the money instead of establishing the quality of the work, figuring the, the quality work will draw money. Agreed. You made that point after you saw Last Jedi, and I agreed with you at that, that time as well. Ultimately, what this seems to be more often than not is franchise camels that are put together by a committee instead of having some somebody that really wants to put out a good quality product or putting the right people in charge. And they're not worried about the movie so much as just, uh, or excuse me, the quality of the movie so much as the quantity of the movies. So let's get into novelty. I gave it an eight. Superhero films are clearly not novel by themselves. You'd already had, I think, at least five Batman films. You'd had five Superman films. You'd had three Spider-Man films to this point. So, And all of those were big tentpole pieces. You'd had uh, completely different universes. The one place that I would give this any level of novelty and... Even to a certain extent, it's not novel for this film, but what it eventually would become is starting off with the possibility of a team-up and a franchise, that you're building towards something else. And I think that this character is not necessarily new or original or creative. You, you've seen that there's so many similarities to this that in the Batman arc, but it, I think for what they were trying to create out of the Avengers system, I think that's the novel portion of this. The only other thing that I would give it any credit for on a novelty basis, and I know that the, I'm probably, you're maybe questioning why I gave it an 8 since I'm basically chopping it down at this point, but is the way that Marvel Studios created the Marvel brand within Disney essentially using Paramount in order to do the early films while Disney built up Marvel Studios to be able to pre produce and create these later on by themselves. So that when you got to Phase 2, they were completely within the Disney brand. So that would be one of the, the smaller novel ways that they kind of used a different studio and their capabilities in order to produce this and launch their franchise, even though... After the fact, it ended up being with a different studio uh, piloting the brand by that point. Novelty, I gave it a four. And the reason I gave it a four is because superheroes go back to the days of radio in the 1930s. I mean, the 1940s, the Green Hornet was a radio show that ultimately became a comic book and then a series of movies. 
these are not novel. These have been going on, you know, since the very beginning. When Superman came on, he was in comic books and he was on radio before that. This is not novel at all. This was the only novelty in this is the fact that it went into an area where, you know, instead of the DC comics, which is Superman, Batman, etc., this went into a different area that was not as common. That's the only novelty. So I gave it a, uh, a four because of that. So, again, we've been talking about how we need to make sure we have some differentiation. And so I'm sorry, that's where I come from because... For the most part, superhero movies and comic book characters have been a, a a fairly safe genre for movies for a long time. The one place that I will say it's novel is, you kind of mentioned it at the top of the show, you didn't have any built-in knowledge of Iron Man. Whereas with Spider-Man, you have some association or there had been something leading up to that. I don't really remember there being any animated shows or any major properties or pieces of Iron Man that you were establishing. And so for this to be ultimately a successful film for this property and build off the back of it, that is one part that I'll give it a little bit of credit for the novelty of it. But I also understand your argument. So it's it's good to have a range of things uh, where you and I are not agreeing. Let's go to classicness. I had an eight. Because... I think it really did establish basically 10 or 12 to 15 years of cinema in Hollywood. So I gave it a four. So we flip-flopped on the novelty classic in this conversation. There are so many parts of this from a continuity standpoint that are questionable. By the time we even get to Iron Man 2, we've recast Terrence Howard with Don Cheadle. Which was merited. Well, whether it was or it wasn't, I, you know, I'm not going to go here or there. There's plenty of internet articles everybody can research and look into that one because that, that's been a long-going thing, and frankly, Terrence Howard probably cost himself uh, a lot of money. Uh, the Paramount logo with these movies, I think that is not necessarily... Uh, it doesn't fit the rest of the sequence. Um, the fact that uh, some of the scenes seem to be really scaled back you think of how big and grandiose some of the modern marvel movies are they're nowhere near as small scale or even as grounded as this movie is i mean this this movie is one of the few where you could say oh yeah i could see this actually happening somewhat in real life where you get a playboy billionaire that decides to invent a military grade suit for himself in order to become a superhero there's at least some grounded realism in it that is not apparent in a lot of the other ones. Because a character like Doctor Strange, who is part of the quote-unquote multiverse and is the Sorcerer Supreme, is much more ridiculous. And as we continued to build out, I mean, by the time we got to the third film, we had what was a Norse god who existed in a completely different realm with a magic hammer who was the god of lightning and thunder. And, I mean, yes. we, we got to these rather ridiculous points, which you were able to take that trip because of this film, but it's certainly not one of those that I would say uh, ages all that great. 
they're the playboyness and kind of some of there's a lot of adult content whereas the modern marvel movies are much more oriented towards kids this is one of the few where i would say this was probably a more pg-13 type of movie by comparison to some of the other ones which are a little bit more kid friendly the kind of insinuation of some of the adult content doesn't necessarily age well by comparison to the other films and so there are just some pieces of this that I think don't fit in with the rest of the brand if you try and compare and contrast on a classicness value. I don't think there's anything cringy necessarily. There's just some pieces to kind of pick off and just scrape away or chip away at the overall structure or sculpture in order to get that. So I went with a four. Which is why, of course, your exact arguments is why I came up with an eight. For the exact same reasons, but I look at it a different way. This film fits more in the line of all the other films. The Superman films, the early Batman films that uh, had um, George Clooney and... uh, Hey, no. Most people would like to forget George Clooney and the Bat Nipples. (laughs) Yeah, okay. This fits more within that group of films that came out through that time. So that's one of the reasons why I gave it a classicness, because in order to have anything that went beyond this, you had to have some sort of a connection. It's like you you can't just, it's kind of like uh, jumping into cold water. If you jump into cold water, you start to hyperventilate. For most people, and that's being the people of my age during this time frame, you know, you throw them in there and they're going to watch this film. If it goes too far and where I've seen some of the films go that I've watched bits and pieces of with you in the more later Marvel universe, I would have went, walked out and said, I'm done with this. This is crap. I makes no sense to me. I don't see this. This is a transitional film, which is why I gave it the eight for classicness. Rewatchability, this one's pretty easy for me. As I've mentioned before, I've seen this movie I don't know how many times at this point. It's ridiculously numerable, and the fact that I was not only willing, but kind of excited to do this movie, because it was our first superhero one, and it kind of fits in with a little bit more modern role, I gave it a 9.5. You would think that maybe I'd give it a straight 10, because it really is not a film that I have difficulty revisiting, It's one I can easily pop on at almost any time. It's just that this is not necessarily when I go to watch Marvel films or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the one that I'm gravitating toward first. There are a couple of other ones that are a little bit higher on my scale, the go-tos that I would go to first before I go to this movie. So I just knocked it down a half a point to 9.5. How about you? Five. And I went with a straight in the middle because... This is not a film that if it's on, I'm going to go, oh, I'm going to stop and watch it. Um, This is a film that if you're home and you put it on, and I happen to be sitting in the sunroom where our TV is at home, and I'm reading, and I get tired of reading, I look up, I start watching, I'll sit and watch the film for a while. So to me, that's, I'll watch it if it's on, but I'm not going out of my way to watch it. And that's the definition to me of the middle of the road of five which is where I am. That's fair. I know this is not necessarily your type of movie, so it's it's good that we've kind of branched out a little bit. 
just to revisit for the audience, that's 8.75 for Legacy, 9.5 for Impact Significance, 6 for Novelty, 6 for Classicness, 7.25 for Rewatchability. This had a 91% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, which adds 9.1 points for a total of 46.6. Okay. And we've had a lot of uh, differentiations in scoring, so good. So, remaining questions. What do you have? We kind of have already hinted at it. Well, my biggest question is, is throughout the film, they talk about his father helping develop the A-bomb as being this great thing that we accomplished. And for most Americans, I understand, probably it saved a million casualties by invading Japan, but... If you lived in Hiroshima or Nagasaki, that's not necessarily a great thing, is it? And no. so I, I, I guess I have a little bit of a pause uh, when start when people start talking about the great uh, accomplishment that was the um, Manhattan Project. No, I think it is a much larger, more philosophical discussion than we usually give it credit for in its usage, in the world it's created, its philosophical applications, all of the existential aspect to it. So I, I think it's a much different conversation, and I guess that would be one area where it might have created somewhat of a cringe moment, now that you mention it. So I already hinted at mine uh, a little bit ago, and... For me, uh, one of the ways in which this is clearly a different uh, film from the others, I mentioned it before, but the revealing of yourself as the superhero. By comparison to all the ones that came before it, with the exception of maybe the X-Men, and I guess the Fantastic Four technically was outed because of the circumstances of their creation, but the uh, superhero revealing their secret identity or who they really are and living that outwardly is a very different change. So I guess if I were to ask a question, and it's pretty much unanswerable because Marvel never bothers to really answer it, and you can maybe make some good educated guesses based on his personality, but why would you reveal yourself? I think the best question I've ever had, or excuse me, the best answer I've ever had to this one is, Tony does not do anything quietly. He wants the celebrity status. He wants the recognition and the outwardly love that he would get for being a superhero. Because ultimately, that places him number one on like deity status in, in the world at large. That's about the one thing I can really put my finger on. In other um, words, he's Charles Foster Keynes. No. Seeking the love that he never got as a child. No, I think he just enjoys the adoration. I don't think he needs it. I, I think there's a okay. difference. And ultimately, I think, again, not to get into a, a movie we haven't reviewed yet. Obviously, we will be doing at some point Citizen Kane. But the, the problematic nature of Kane is that that is his tragic flaw that he ultimately cannot find the affection he seeks from a public standpoint because he doesn't actually love himself. 
And so all of these assumptions, all of the women that he ends up being with, his um, child, his first wife, his second wife, his partners, uh, all the people he lives uh, somewhat of a public life for become the tragic moment because ultimately there will never satisfy that need that he has to be loved because he's never going to be satisfied enough to allow himself to be loved. I think that's a difference. Whereas this is, or Tony Stark is somewhat of a hammy type character where his, he gets a lot out of the self-adulation of the public crowds, but I don't think that that is his deeper need or um, true desire is for affection in a public sense. He enjoys it, and he likes to live in that confidence and bravado, but I think ultimately there are different things that drive him, and that's why I think there's a separation or a difference. Uh, the other remaining question I have is, Ultimately, and maybe you you have a better sense of this than I am, because I think that you kind of hinted at it before, but why would Obadiah want Tony dead? He kind of hints at it before that he was concerned with killing the Golden Goose, but the entire company is based upon Tony's development and his genius. So why, I guess the only guess I would have is... There's a line in that final battle that's also part of that, like, cliche antagonist monologue or the comic book villain monologue that you almost seemingly have to have that explains their entire motivation up to that point. I've been carrying you for 30 years. Has he? Yes. Because you don't understand. There's a difference between being the genius and being the one who builds the company. They're different. The idea guy is not necessarily the guy who's the nuts and bolts. And it's every person who's developed or been involved in a company, every lawyer who has been in a situation where they're an associate and they think they would like to run their own show because they're in control. They can do it what they want and how they want. And that's the aspect of this. He looked on it and said, this guy or... Uh, Stark's father was the idea guy. He came up with all the great ideas, but he left it to me to develop the company that became a multi-billion dollar company. And now his kid is the same thing. Why wouldn't I want to take control of what is really my creation? You're just the figurehead. You're the person who gives the ideas, but I'm the one who makes them profitable. I suppose I can see that. It's just harder for me to relate to it. So I, I don't know, maybe in a different sense, if we ever reviewed this uh, a few years down the line, although I guarantee the numbers will change the further we get away from this movie. So the movie industry could look entirely different because I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is in a precarious position at the moment, given how they ended the last Avengers film and how they move forward without some of their core characters being a part of this next phase. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week we are discussing a holiday favorite that I have to admit I don't remember ever seeing, and at <laughs> least not since I was a very little kid, Home Alone with Macaulay Culkin. That's going to be an interesting watch for us, so 
So make sure you are subscribed to this feed for that one next week. Just hit the follow button on whichever streaming service you use to get your podcast. If you'd like to get a hold of us again, please email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. That's greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. 